Hello and welcome to the What For Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with Dave O'Higgins. So, time to kick 2022 off with some tenor tones. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the first episode of Series 9 of the What For Jazz Junction podcast. And a very happy new year to you all. As always, if you like what you hear, do let a friend know and make sure to subscribe. And you can also check out the show notes for useful extra info and links. Elsewhere, and for the live music lovers amongst us, our early bird tickets are now all gone. But you can still buy general admission tickets to see the Tony Kofi Quintet playing the awesome music of Cannibal Adderley on the 12th of February here in Watford. Plus, our full May 2022 festival lineup has been announced. And tickets are also now on sale. Go buy Jazzcats at whatforjazzjunction.com. Now to business. Today I am joined by a sax player who I first heard as but a teenage sproglet when he was with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Since when he's appeared in a long list of bands, both in his own name and as a sideman playing with everyone from Frank Sinatra, yep you heard it, to Peggy Lee, from Wayne Shorter to Abdullah Ibrahim. A committed musician to both the tradition of music and his instrument, jazz leader at the London College of Contemporary Media and founder of the jazz recording studio JVG, it can only be the most fabulous Dave O'Higgins. Dave, hello. How are you? Hi, Chris. I'm tremendously well. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This is most, most exciting. Where in the world do I find you? Where are you based? I'm at home in, in the Brixton Riviera in South London at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, big up to the Brixton Massive. We like that part of the world. So I, I mentioned the National Youth Jazz Orchestra then. Um, how old were you when you joined Nijo? What was the story? Why did you get into jazz? I joined Nijo when I was 19 years old. And uh, it was 1983, which sounds, uh, I guess it sounds a millennium ago, really, doesn't it? Um, and um, I was with the band for three years. I'd, I'd just moved down to London from um, Derbyshire, where I, where I come from, uh, to, right. to study music at the City University, which um, right. was a performance-oriented course run in conjunction with the Guildhall. So I kind of felt like I went to the Guildhall because I was there all of the time. And, you know, all my teachers and, and um, uh, colleagues were, were were there, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, I moved to London in 1983 and I was lucky enough to get a place in Nijo pretty much straight away. Someone left and so, you know, the door was open to me. So was that back in the day? I'm trying to remember. Was it like Adrian Ravel and, and those people there a bit later? They were a little who, bit later. Who, you, who was on your front line? Who were you playing with? Okay, so my uh, front line uh, was um, Nigel Hitchcock, Andy Panay, oh. Mark Nightingale, Gerard Presenza, Ian Thomas, Mike Bradley, yeah. uh, wow. Mike Smith were the drummers sort of in rotation. It was actually Mike Smith's gig, but... Um, yeah, Ian Thomas and Mike Bradley were doing it a lot at the time. What a hotbed of talent. Um, I also have to know, did Derbyshire have a youth jazz orchestra? And if so, was it called Dijo? <laughs> yes, Derbyshire did have a youth jazz orchestra. And I, actually, as a 14-year-old, I was pretty much the one responsible for starting it up. I, I put an advert in a newspaper and got some help of some some older people. Uh, there were two... Well, there was one person who really helped me out who was... Um, uh, uh, yeah. When I was fourteen, he was nineteen. Um, a chap called Andrew Stanton from from Derbyshire, uh, who right. who was a great piano player. I say was Andrew's still very much alive and kicking, but sadly he's had a lot of problems with arthritis with his hands, and he's unable to play piano anymore. But um, he man. he was a great influence on me and lent me all of his Charlie Parker and uh, Miles Davis records. 
So I guess he's kind of responsible for the um, for the weird life that that I've had in a way. <laughs> in a well, way. well, he demand. Yeah. We give a, a big shout out. Um, and these people are so important, aren't they? You you can't predict who they're going to be, but the happenstance of of life, you never know who it is is going to have this influence on you. But but clearly a very helpful sort of early mentor. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a strange sort of uh, happenstance, really, because. I literally put an advert in the Derby Evening Telegraph and Andrew was the first person to reply to it. And, you know, we've been lifelong buddies and he's, he's been a huge influence on me. And, and so we started this thing that became the Derby Youth Jazz Orchestra and then it got sort of taken over by people with more sort of official capacities. Right. And, and so, yeah, that was, that, was, that was the beginning of that. And that was a great opportunity to meet a lot of other like-minded young people. Doing their thing. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I really love it. And I love the self-starting nature of it. That it's like, someone else must be playing locally. Um, so nowadays in the music you make, and also, uh, you know, the people you work with, what, what is it you're looking for when you're, when you're putting read to lip, so to speak? You know, I have a load of different kind of projects on the go. And I'm always, um, right. it's one of those things that, you know, you're constantly evolving. I'm hopefully constantly evolving as a, as a musician. I find myself actually, as I get older, wanting to delve more into the past in a more detailed kind of way. I, when I was in uh, just fresh out of the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, I was you know touring with a lot of commercial pop groups and stuff, and I was also as as a young man, obviously very influenced by by the scene at the time. And I was yeah. playing in an Icelandic band called Mezzo Forte, who were a chart breaking instrumental jazz funk group, which was quite unusual. You know, it was awesome. Uh, I, I guess in that era, you know, Mezzo Forte and Level 42 were around as well, yeah, and a few yeah, bands yeah, yeah. Like, like that. And so I was lucky enough to tour with them. You know, I was into that whole fusion scene of that era and spent a lot of time experimenting with electronics and odd meters. And things that I guess were um, crossed over between funk and sort of progressive rock, which I grew up with as a kid. Uh, at the same time, though, I was always keen to learn standards and to play, you know, the standard jazz repertoire because I found I, I loved knowing a lot of, uh, I always made the effort to learn tunes so that I'd be useful without a real book in a, in a practical situation you know at a jam yeah, session yeah, yeah, or on a yeah. gig i always like just be able to turn up at a gig without any music be able to call tunes and... well it just makes you look that bit cooler dave <laughs> well i was very you know i i knew a lot of great older musicians who were super influential on me i mean one of the biggest influences on on me as, as a as a young lad was um the guitarist jim mullen and oh, right, you know yeah, i yeah. played in jim's band for about five years and i recorded two albums with him later on you know but I was listening to him early on and you know I remember Jim made a big impression that you know you really had to know this stuff and if you didn't know it you had to be able to pick it up and it was a question of not having a chart put in front of you just you know working out how it went on the fly and sometimes you'd be made to look a little foolish on the stage doing it but you know that was the sort of baptism of fire and I learned a lot from that and I'm still learning from that lesson to this day you know, I got into learning tunes and that was always an important side. On the flip side of that, I was into doing, trying to make that, mix that up with what I was listening to that was contemporary when I was young in that era. And I think yeah. as I've got older, I've got more into actually really just sort of pursuing the older side of it because I guess as I'm mm. not a young man anymore. Um, oh, come, I, come. Well, <laughs> what I mean is that you don't have the same influences from the contemporary stuff because... 
I, I obviously hear pop music and I'm aware of it, but it doesn't resonate with me in the same way as it does when it's from the generation that you're in, which is sure. correct. I mean, it's what pop music's supposed to do, isn't it? So as a result, I guess I'm less influenced by contemporary popular music now than I was when I was younger. And so I'm sort of taking the opportunity to delve more deeply into the stuff that maybe I missed out on because I didn't concentrate so much on it when I, when I was young. Back in the day. Yeah. Well, that's very, very interesting. I'm going to come back, I think, at some point to that, the, the nature of popular music. And of course, it is of the time, isn't it? But yeah. that, And it may wally people, it may include people, but it's very much of its moment. Yeah. I hadn't really given that a lot of thought until then. Um, but I, what I have, uh, what I was thinking about when you mentioned Jim Mullen, Mm. And bringing you right up to date. I know that you've been doing a musical partnership with Rob Luft, mm. uh, another guitarist. What's the story of that relationship? Is that built on that, you know, on the albums that you did with Jim Mullen and you know, looking for that relationship between guitar and tenor? Or what? what's the story? Yeah, well, certainly there's a lineage there. And, uh, you know, I was um, always hugely indebted to Jim for kind of taking me under his wing, helping me on when I was coming up and... I had naively thought that I might be able to do that a bit with Rob, but Rob doesn't need any of that kind of uh, <laughs> direction. <laughs> what a big I don't show think off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's already got all that stuff together. He's yeah, the one who's yeah, showing yeah. me everything. But um, uh, no, I mean it's um, the the thing. I think the essence of what I learned from Jim is very important to also look for the freshness and the inspiration you get from mixing up the generations. So you know, yeah. if you're, yeah. I'm still very excited to hear young musicians coming up who can play and you know rob's definitely at the very top of the tree um, from his generation and and so it's great fun to get some new impetus and some new blood into the band yeah and rob and i did a something like a 40 i can't remember how many dates 42 date tour or something in 2019 fortunately just before we got locked down so that was the last time i heard you uh you were with rob at the london jazz festival at the royal festival hall i think okay yeah um that was just great you know when you like stop thinking oh i'll give this five minutes not in a sort of dismissive sense but i've got five minutes and it's like half an hour later i'm like cool blimey what happened then it was properly you properly relate to each other i mean there's just a genuine interflow oh yeah absolutely of your two different vibes it's so cool yeah, no, that's that's been a great fun band. You know, we're actually we've been planning our next project for a while, but obviously we've been scuppered with when we've been able to start it off. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're definitely on the cusp of being um, playing in my studio and getting some some songs written. And um, the the first album we did, um, we had, we elected to play the music of Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane because uh-huh. when we were just jamming together. Rob seemed to have a predilection for calling those tunes and I knew those tunes so it was great you know and I uh, felt confident to play them and um, and so you know that was how come that project was born which was quite nice because Rob's other projects was doing all original music less oriented around the sort of swing and and standard type tradition so um, um, this was a kind of a way to introduce him perhaps more to my typical audience and um, it seemed to really work, you know, it seemed to appeal to both generations. Um, yeah, but yeah, this yeah. time we're going to be doing a record predominantly of original material that we've both been working on. So we're quite excited Ooh. about that. 
Oh, I'm claiming that as a Watford Jazz Junction <laughs> exclusive. Look out, look out, kids. Something new is coming your way. Yeah. So just thinking about, because I picture you playing the tenor normally, but I also know you play soprano. And for our very educated listeners, they don't need to be told that there are four sort of popular sax types. Do you ever try out what it's like on the alto and stuff? I know you've been talking about Charlie Parker. Do you ever dally with the alto? Yeah, I started on alto and I I, I really like alto. Um, just I got kind of... Um, I guess seduced by the sound of um, Dexter Gordon, and yeah. um, I've got a sort of favourite era. I'm a real boffin with sort of. There's an era of Dexter, which is basically the first half of the 1960s when he recorded on Blue Note Records, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. an era of Coltrane, which is the end of the 50s, where to me I think they had the sound that I like most. The tenor was the one that took over your life, so to speak. Yeah, and um, so of course when you elect. You know, it tends to really be whether you're going to be primarily a tenor player or an alto player. And because the two instruments are in different keys, then it does have some bearing on how comfortable you feel when you go out. Because especially if you learn a lot of tunes, it's clearly easier to be really strong on them. I mean, you know, an easy tune is is easy in any key, but things like, you know, Charlie Parker tunes or complex themes... Um, yeah. are a little more difficult to be expected to be able to play in different keys. So therefore, um, tenor players tend to stick to doubling on soprano more often than not, and yeah. alto players tend to stick to doubling on baritone more often than not. But that's a very general rule, and I, I'm, I'm happy to play all four in the studio situation, but I tend to take tenor and soprano out on gigs. Amazing. Um, only just has come to my mind because I was talking about other saxophones. I was in a music shop a, a few years ago and someone brought in a, a Con O sax, which must have been about six foot long. So it wasn't wound up on itself with that with the bell. More like a, a very, 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 very long soprano saxophone. Yeah. Have you ever played any unusual saxes? Yeah, well, they've been making some modern straight tenors and altos, haven't they? And um, Have they? Yeah, yeah. God, yeah well, think- I'm, I'm well out of the loop. Yeah, I think Kenny Garrett played a straight alto on for a little while, and and maybe Joe Lovano played a straight right. tenor on something. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's still kind of a bit novelty. That the 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 joking thing that I say is that they made them, they curved them so you could get them in the case. But um, I stole that from John Dankworth. But the, the I guess the real thing is that it's easier to. Um, uh, uh, the, if the sound comes on a straight instrument, the sound comes from out the keys and out the bell of the instrument. Well, on, yeah, on any yeah. instrument. Um, yeah. And so on a soprano, because the bell is fairly close to you, you still get a sense of the instrument being a kind of all-in-one kind of event. Whereas if you play a straight alto, it's already getting quite long. So half of the sound is kind of coming out towards your feet, which makes it a bit... Um, I don't know what the word is, a bit disorientating perhaps, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And also a little impractical from the point of view of, certainly if you want to record it or amplify it. Um, the um, Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that works well with the soprano saxophone because it gives the soprano saxophone also a different tonality, a little bit more of an oboe kind yeah. of quality, which Fine. I think is kind of cool. And for that reason, I don't like curved sopranos because to me they just they sound you get you can't get away from the sound out the bell which is quite piercing whereas yeah. on the straight and they sopranos, just look funny dave bit, they look weird 
Well, it always reminds well, me of those old madness videos. Yeah. <laughs> Curve Soprano. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, we're back. We're back to your era. I, yeah. I'm loving it. We're getting madness in there. Level forty-two. We're living the dream. Um, now, you mentioned John Dankworth, um, yeah. and the nature of some of my questions are, are bringing out the natural pedagogue in you. Uh, perhaps because you'll obviously clearly remember teaching me back in 1991 at uh, John Dankworth's Wavendon Stables. Every minute of it, Chris. How could I forget uh, it? Exactly. I, I, I knew you'd remember. Um, <laughs> but despite that experience, Dave, uh, you're still committed to teaching. Um, <laughs> how much value do you place on jazz education these days? And you still, you know teaching sharing etc or do you find your professional life has taken over that that time that you would have otherwise had yeah teaching's become actually a big part of my life and when i started teaching um well i started teaching a long time ago on courses like the Wimbledon jazz course that you mentioned i mean you said that was what 91 or something like that so i mean i was in my uh, early 20s then you know yeah 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 but I started teaching I guess in higher education you know formal higher education settings probably about the end of the 90s and um, I've taught at lots of different places and been offered a few jobs in various places but where I've wound up is at the uh, London College of Contemporary Media um, yeah where I run the jazz pathway and I teach harmony in the third year and I also teach saxophone there but the point is that um, I guess I kind of got into it by accident to start off with. I was just asked to teach on some courses because I was a performer. And at the time, I remember being a little bit uncertain as to how much I felt I really wanted to do of that. And as I got more organized with my methodology, I started to find that not only did I enjoy the process of teaching, but I also learned a lot from the process of teaching. So it was a, a double kind of win scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another thing which is quite good now I'm sort of getting a, a little older is that I don't have any desire to go on tour with bands that I don't feel I have a significant artistic input to. You know, mm. when I was in my 20s, I was touring with lots of bands. And of course, like a young guy that age, I love being on tour with well-known pop bands it was lots of fun you'd get really sure. well looked after you'd go all over the world you'd stay in some fancy hotels and it was brilliant but that's not really for me now unless it's a project that I'm creatively involved in therefore I'm not doing as much of that sort of thing uh, I mean I still gig a lot uh, yeah. in order to facilitate being a bit pickier I guess there are all sorts of other options and lots of people end up choose of their own volition and thoroughly enjoy doing West End shows or being in the studio all the time doing session work. For me, I love gigging. I love doing jazz gigs and I also enjoy teaching, which I do formally one full day a week. But in reality, it's probably more like about two and a half days a week with the preparation yeah. and the extra private teaching and various other things. And then I've also fallen into the studio side which has come about because most studios for financial reasons are oriented around recording uh, rock and pop music so yeah so this is your venture jvg is it yeah. is it something you founded or is it something you've collaborated with what, what's the it's a fancy JVG? name for the studio in my house really so it's not um, a commercial studio having said that we've recorded a lot of albums here and i'm happy to do stuff uh record people that i know here yeah 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 and you know i've really learned from knowing absolutely nothing about it apart from just following my intuition having had a lot of experience playing studios 
Yeah. Um, to now, now I've been recording for about sort of fifteen years or so. I'm I'm starting to get quite good at it. You know, it's like playing an instrument. I'm I guess fifteen years as a as a recording engineer. I'm 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 still kind of a novice a bit compared to the real pros. You know, but um, yeah. I'm being asked more frequently to go out to locations and record stuff as well, which I can do, which I thoroughly enjoy. If it's again, if it's sort of music that I enjoy doing. So I try and sort of limit my recording thing to, you know, basically recording jazz material. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll ask you a technical question that you might not feel you, you mm. want to to answer, but the difference between recording jazz musicians and let's just sort of say recording a rock band, mm. other than the sort of cacophony of noise, what are, what are the key differences that you find when you're, when you're setting up to say record a, a jazz quartet or quintet versus a, a four or five piece rock band well the the main difference and the, and the reason why i set out to try to do it is that most studios are set up to record people in isolation right which is of course is very good for being able to do overdubs and repairs and 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 change things and go into great detail the sound of each individual instrument but it goes rather counter to that very essence of getting a good jazz performance out of a band which involves responding to each other spontaneously and Mm -hmm. responding to the timbre of the instruments and the the dynamics. And I've always found when you're in studio and you're all in different rooms or booths and you're entirely reliant on a headphone mix, it's the only time we ever have to play like that. And, and, And we rarely play our best in that situation. You know, I looked at the, the model of Rudy van Gelder's famous recordings of the, of the fifties and sixties yeah. Uh, which are you know most of our favorite records and um, of course they all recorded in the same room not wearing headphones and so I wondered if there was a sort of a, a old meets new kind of hybrid effective compromise so the musicians could play in a way that was totally familiar to them i.e no headphones listen to each other acoustically but you could still get enough clarity and detail on the individual instruments to satisfy audiophiles when they're listening to the recording. Mm. And, you know, it's a bit of a balancing act because obviously if you've got, you know, the very nature of a straight-ahead jazz group is the the core of the rhythm section is the double bass, which is the quietest instrument in the band, and the drums, which is the loudest instrument in the band. And those (laughs) two things have to work together nicely for it to work in an acoustical environment. And, of course, as amplifiers and monitors came in, musicians started to forget, you know, that was no longer the priority to balance acoustically. And so I guess my aesthetic is dependent on a little bit of a return to a traditional approach in that respect. I balance it acoustically so that it can be recorded to sort of pristine effect. That's fascinating as well. I I don't think maybe, I mean, maybe some people do, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking so much about the art of recording so much as it being a, a precise and you know almost mechanized process because you're pressing a lot of buttons and, and lots of things sort of happen automatically but of course what you're referencing is the is the genuine capturing of the art and you know filling around with the recording or the setup so to speak as to capture as near near be possible to what it does sound like as a, as a standalone performance i applaud mm-hmm. right are you ready Four, Chris's 10 whirlwind of musical choices, O'Higgins O quiz. Hmm. So I'm going to ask you 10 questions. They're very, very simple, mm-hmm. but I just need you to give your, your immediate, quick first answer, all right? Yeah. Question one, B-flat clarinet or bass clarinet? Bass clarinet. Question two, oboe or bassoon? Oboe. 
Question three, alto or baritone? Alto. Question four, Charlie Charlie Parker or John Coltrane? Charlie Parker. I hate myself for saying that, but... (laughs) Question five, trumpet or trombone? Trumpet. Question six, bagpipes or organ? Organ. Question seven, guitar or piano? Piano. Question eight, Royal Albert Hall or the 606 Club? 606 Club. Question nine, our penultimate question, record player or iTunes? Record player. Oh, he's a purist. And my final question, a pint or a cuppa? A pint. Oh, strong play. Right, I'm just going to add up and tally up. So we were out of ten. Obviously, I'm multiplying some of them by three, which would give us a very high potential score. Um, I'll knock off a couple because whilst it's been edited out, Dave did have a coughing fit in the middle. So I'll take off 10, but I'm going to give him 15, pulling it back. Out of all, Dave, I'm going to give you 99 out of 100. How do you feel? <laughs> you're a generous man, Chris. Well, you're, you're a generous <laughs> guest. Okay, so my set question for you, Dave O'Higgins. I have read a review that said of you, your fund of ideas never runs out. How important as a musician is it to keep your ideas fund, fresh and fruitful? And how might one do it? Discuss. Crikey, that's a, a quite a loaded question. There's all kinds of things that go into trying to keep the flow of ideas interesting. Mm. And for me, one of the most important things is to keep on listening to stuff and being influenced by stuff so that you don't get in too much of a rut with just churning out the same thing year in, year out. Mm -hmm. When I'm practicing and when I'm performing, I'm in two kind of different headspaces. So when I practice, I go into great detail, thinking about very specific things and drilling stuff. And I'm a great fan of just stealing things I like and trying to manipulate them so I can play them in any environment. But then when I actually perform with a group, I'm trying to, on a good day, I'm concentrating all my energies on listening to what everybody else in the band is doing and making sure that everything I contribute is rhythmically pertinent. And if I just think about rhythm, then everything I do falls into place because I've spent enough time practicing the other stuff. And thinking about rhythm is great because that inspires you to... um, The only way to play rhythms is you you have to leave stuff out or else things are not rhythms. Then it's just like a continuous machine gun. That's one of the best things to think primarily about rhythm is it forces you to think about the inverse of the rhythm you play, i.e. the rhythms you don't play. And it makes things so much more interesting and interactive. And I find that when I manage to get myself into that into that zone, it's it's really kind of palpable. The, the vibe in the band just goes up. That's a very interesting and rich answer. Um, but you've also what unwittingly just pushed yourself up to 100 out of 100 <laughs> for your quiz score. It's by, not scientific, is it, that quiz score? But it, hold on, hold on. Uh, by uttering the, the beautiful words, rhythmically pertinent. I mean, that's got to be the soundbite of all soundbites for 2022. We're taking it. But no, that's a brilliant answer. And it's really interesting to hear that, the relationship between what you practice and, of course, then what happens on stage and, and keeping yourself uh, fresh. Um, right, it's top three album time. Uh, which albums do you find yourself going back to again and again? Okay, well, I can give you the first two, no problem. And so the okay. first one would be Go by Dexter Gordon. Yeah. Uh, every hey. tune, everyone's a coconut on that album. Um, and I just, <laughs> uh, yeah, love the 
kick off with Cheesecake. It's brilliant. Nailed it. It's in there. <laughs> uh, album two. Album two, Blue Train, John Coltrane. This is going to be interesting when we get to album three. So Blue Train uh, by John Coltrane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing with Blue Train is... Coltrane's sound is just so authoritative on that record. It's to me, it's like the moment where everything's just perfectly in place, and uh, you know, exactly. I love the tunes. And uh, okay, so album three. Well, I guess I've left this spot. It depends. I can go in a multitude of different directions. So I could guess I could go in the direction of um, something I'm listening to now, or I could go in the direction of something that got me into music and a big moment in making me feel that that was what I should do. So I think I'll go in the second direction. And on, and the thing on, that, that made me want to be a musician in the first place, that just totally did it, that made the difference between thinking, you know, I was into music and absolutely knowing I had to be a musician, was Led Zepp for. Oh, the way it starts with Black Dog, that is such a killer. We've got it. I, I wanted to be John Bonham. I wanted to be the drummer in Led Zeppelin. Hey, I don't think you're alone there. And that's very interesting for regular listeners that prog rock and uh, that 70s rock has once again made it into a, a, a jazz musician's top three albums. Fantastic. What a great little lineup. So we've got Dexter Gordon, John Coltrane, and of course, the magnificent Led Zeppelin. Right. Finally, Dave, it's time to sort out our house band. Some say, mm -hmm. well, I do always, that it's the most eclectic and extraordinary fantasy band in podcast show business. Currently, our lineup is thus. We have Jerry Allen on the piano. We have mm -hmm. Eddie Wakili Hicks on the drums. We have Charles Mingus on bass. Alex Garnett on tenor. Joe Temperley on bass saxophone. John Hassel on trumpet. Mark Nightingale on trombone. And then we've got three singers. We've got Norma Winston, Carmen McRae, and Betty Carter. And if that's not enough, we also have Alice Coltrane on the harp, giving us 11 musicians in the Watford Jazz Junction podcast fantasy band. Now, Dave, your task yeah. is to remove one of those musicians, if you fancy, but also to bring in a new player from any point in jazz history. How and what should you like to do to our band? Um, okay, well, I guess I'd removed the only player who I haven't heard of, who was the drummer. Who was the drummer in the band? Eddie Wakili. Yeah, well, you see, I can't really offend anyone by removing someone I haven't heard well, of. Well, okay, so Eddie's out. Who are you going to put in? I'm going to put Elvin Jones in. Love it. We haven't had him. Oh, Elvin Jones, The Lighthouse. It's made me think of another brilliant album. Uh, fantastic. Right, okay. So uh, we are still at 11 players and we have welcomed Elvin Jones to the band for the first time. Okay, so moreover, it's thanks very much to you, Dave, for being with us today. What plans for 2022? Make this new album with Rob Luft. Right. So I guess that's the, that's the next sort of creative project out of the blocks. I'm doing more, more recording stuff. Um, I've started recording a lot of bands at the Pizza Express and Dean Street, nice. which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, also that's a step, big step up for me because, um, well, for one thing, I'm getting out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> also got a beautiful Steinway B piano there and it's always, uh, it's a very nice room to hear bands in. It sounds very, very good in there. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping there's going to be a lot more of that and we're discussing how to develop that at the moment. Yeah, I'm doing some more teaching, more touring. Um, I work a lot with the piano player, Graham Harvey, right. and we have a band together called the Harvey O'Higgins Project and we'll be doing a lot more gigging hopefully in the new year to um, promote a recently released album and also I'm doing a big tour with Matt Bianco who I 
co-write the songs with now and I call that my pop project Mark Riley who's the singer with Matt Bianco refers to it as his jazz project so we, we've obviously got a clash of um, <laughs> clash of concepts going on it. but I think that's where the band's strength is so, oh well loads and um, loads of, of opportunities then yeah. to catch up with you and, and hear you live so if you have liked what you've listened to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you want to know more about Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com or follow us on all the various social media. You can also email us at jazzwatfordlive at gmail.com but only to add to the already extraordinarily high levels of musical intellectualism that you're well used to on this podcast. Next time, we are in conversation with Tara Minton and Ed Barber. But until then, it's goodbye, lovely listener. It's goodbye, the lovely Dave. Thank you for having me. Our great pleasure, sir. Uh, Stay safe and always remember to connect with something new. Bye. Bye.